Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to the second volume of the MC2 project, yet it's the third episode. I guess that does make this MC2 numbering. There's a zero kicking this whole thing off. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm TK, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I am super excited to be talking about the second volume of all of these MC2 launch titles. If for no other reason, it brings some of the things that I am ready to say goodbye to already to a close. And it also does introduce a lot of new things that I really liked, but I am more fascinated than anything by the fact that we're about to talk about some issues that are not currently available. We are going to be taking a look today at the second volume of the proper MC2 launches, Spider-Girl, Numbers 6 through 11 from March of 99 through August of 99. We're also going to be taking a look at J2 and A next, 7 through 12 respectively, from April through September of 99, because Spider-Girl had that zero issue, so it kind of offset the whole thing. So Spider-Girl got collected zero to five, while everything else was one to six. So there's a bit of a month off there. And as of the time of this recording, J2, 7 through 12, are not available online through Marvel Unlimited or or in trade, and a next volume two, seven through 12, are not available in trade. So we're talking about issues that are kind of like a blind spot for anybody trying to dial back into the MC2 without a time machine. And we know that there are so many of those people all around the world, just millions clamoring for these stories. So they're they're really hurting. And I think, you know, if we work hard enough, we might get that on the bus we've been hoping for. Well, you know, you're not just talking nonsense because one of the craziest things is that as of the time of recording this yet again, Spider-Girl is continuing to see republication as this coming Wednesday, we'll see the release of Spider-Girl, the complete collection, collecting issues 51 through 67 of this same run that we're discussing today. So while it certainly is an unusual situation that this title held on for so long, so many people like fought for it, it managed to survive forever, and it's still coming out somehow i mean it started in 98 and here we are in 2022 and this is something that is being republished in a paper shortage and you know you say so many people but it's it did not have a large fan base it never had a large fan base in our first episode we talked about the sales for these books they were never huge but clearly there was something here there was enough here and there was a strength to the fandom that it made sense to marvel to continue with this in some capacity for so long and i think the really interesting thing is as Spider-Man's mythos has become broader in terms of pulling in elements of, in terms of the Spider-Verse. We've had Mayday interface with main continuity and she's now a character where there are people who aren't particularly big on MC2, didn't necessarily read all of these stories, but love Mayday. Are clamoring to see Mayday in one of the Spider-Verse movies. Some version of her to come into the MCU. She herself is a very popular character, regardless of how popular the run over 
overall. You know, I do have to agree with your point about it never really had those sorts of numbers. When we take a look at the numbers that cover Spider-Girl 6 through 11, J2 7 through 12, and Anex 7 through 12, you know, March 99 through September of 99, the highest sales figure these issues saw was Spider-Girl number 6 at just under 50,000 copies. However, the final issue of J2 saw a really tough number of just over 24,000 copies and Anext sat at about 28,500 for its final issue. So we're not really looking at anything that was a runaway hit at the time. These are stories that, I mean, they're for someone. We're here talking about them. So like they're for someone, including us. But there really is a sort of sense of, man, this run, this line hit so many problems right away. And I think it's just important to remember as you listen to us talk about this and as you think about the comics you love and what you wish would come back, that the calculus is not as simple as this thing that sold a lot should get brought back in some way because it will sell a lot as well. There are production, quite how cheap is the content to get out? You know, who's available to do it? How many people would be interested in that thing as compared to how quick it can be brought out? It is a complicated math that we as fans have not the full picture of. So one of the reasons I am so excited about covering this is because Spider-Girl especially just never had huge numbers, but has survived for so long where I, as an X fan, there are so many things that I love about X-Men history that I know sold that are not being brought back, that are not being reproduced. And this is a really important reminder to me that my thing that I think is really cool, it's not as simple as they should bring that back. It's sold. It's much more complicated than that. And that's why I'm reading so many issues of Spider-Girl. I really respect that perspective. It is a really important thing to consider that the way these things get reprinted sometimes can be very confusing. For instance, Spider-Girl Volume 2, like Father Like Daughter, saw publication originally in digest format in December of 2004, but a next Volume 1, which canonically goes before it, didn't see digest print until August 23rd of 2006. So there really are extraordinary factors that go into these decisions, and maybe it is as simple as we don't need that yet, or maybe they were waiting for a big Avengers moment where they thought perhaps they can ride Avengers success to help boost the sales of Anext as a digest. It's really hard to be sure. But, you know, one thing that I'm definitely sure of is this was the point at which it becomes clear this is the Tom DeFalco show. I know that we definitely pointed to Tom DeFalco in our first episodes a lot, but this is the point at which it's just straight up Tom DeFalco's show and we're all reading it. Yeah, there's not a lot of names especially on the writing aspect of things and as we mentioned before for a while in terms of editing as well so when you really start to dig into it that is the name that you have to keep referring back to as you point to the various plot lines and questions that you might have about exactly what's going on because every single issue features tom defalco credited as a writer in some way or another it's of note that j2 number 11 saw larry hama contribute a story which is really cool because larry hama would go on to be the writer of Wild Things, so it's really cool that they let him have a Wild Things story in J2. And of course, Ron Friends would contribute to A Next alongside Tom DeFalco. But really, one writer wrote like the majority of this universe. So few people wrote stories in the MC2 universe other than Tom DeFalco that it is almost unconscionable that he was his own original editor, having nothing to do with like, no, he can't do that. It just could possibly have have led to some of the problems the line did 
suffer being perhaps inaccessible. And maybe even some of the mistakes that plagued the line conceptually could have been caught by another person looking over Tom's shoulder. And, you know, we don't even need to speculate about anything like quality or anything like that. Just the fact of the matter is it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to both write these books and then edit them. So setting aside like, you know, he couldn't do both things. He didn't have the talent to edit. I'm not, I don't think any of that. All I think is it's two jobs one person should not be doing. And I know that we can see some pretty consistent names as his partners in these projects. We have Pat Olief, who penciled all of the Spider-Girl we're here to talk about, as did a Williamson, all the inks, and Christy Scheel, all of the colors. Janice Chiang did all of the letters for Spider-Girl, while the lettering duties on J2 were split between John Morelli and Jim Novak, as well as a little bit of help from Janice Chiang. It sort of seems like because J2 had so many stories in it, the creative credits sort of fell to whoever, with the exception of the main creators being Tom and Ron, across the board, Ron Lim, who was the original penciler on the title and continued to pencil it through to its demise. Paul Ryan, Al Milgram, and Al Williamson shared inking duties, while that Tom Smith did the colors on the title. Anext had a much tighter sort of narrative and had a much tighter creative team as well, with Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Al Milgram, Bob Sharon, and Jim Novak doing all of the creative credits. That's writing, penciling, inking, coloring, and lettering across the board for the entire volume. And it really shows that absolutely everything here was made by five or six people. And, you know, that's not enough, regardless of the quality of stories, regardless of what you might want. When we talk about this, and we talked about this a lot in the first episode, as an alternative to the mainline Marvel continuity and this idea that if things didn't work out, we got to try something new. Let's start from the beginning. Let's set a baseline and go from there and see how it does. I think it's really shooting yourself in the foot to not give an attempt like that the full resources that it deserves. You can't do these things sort of toe in the water because you really are talking about an entire universe. That's what comics fans come to expect. And I believe it's possible to pull something like that off. I think we saw Ultimates get closest, but it's a big endeavor. Especially when you try to do it based on existing work. It's not like these are all new characters where you can build your own version of them. These are characters that exist that people already have expectations of. People come into Spider-Girl having assumptions about Peter Parker and Mary Jane and thus Spider-Girl herself. They come into it with expectations of the rogues gallery or of how certain events might go. If there's going to be a clone saga, it's going to go like this. If there's going to be a symbiote, it's going to be like this. And you can't say, look at this fresh and clean new universe that everybody can jump in on with very limited effort. Oh, but you kind of should know this first 40 years to be safe. Yeah, I even could believe that there is a way to insert versions of every popular Marvel character into a new universe and just simply not talk about the continuity like just don't have to talk about how spider girl's parents were mary jane and peter Parker. i mean you can give names obviously but you don't need to go into their backstory she could just be this person that becomes spider girl it's possible to do but obviously marvel doesn't want to do that because there is an appeal to the history of these characters and to the references so that's great but that selling point that initial selling point of we're not going to get caught up in continuity it is immediately impossible unless you take it as sort of a set in stone man and again we're not talking 
talking about like Marvel could fold anytime right now. We're talking about 1998, 1999, when these stories are coming out. And this is a year from Brian Bendis saying that he thought that Ultimate Spider-Man was going to be the final number one at Marvel because the company was so on the brink of collapse. So we're talking about a very different kind of Marvel universe and a very different sort of Marvel corporate entity. And even then, a very different sort of comics world. I think that we're looking at a sort of synthesized version of what comics would be, but they weren't quite yet like weird comics were still Vertigo and then superhero comics were still superhero comics and you didn't really mix them too much. Every now and then you tried, but we still hadn't yet had superior foes of Spider-Man. We hadn't had, you know, strange, weird stories like new X-Men yet. We hadn't gone those places that Marvel had had always gone in other stories, had gone in things like Miller's Electra stories, but Marvel kept that very away from the main universe. So I don't think there's any better time to sink our teeth into perhaps the most kind of like, I, I think the problem that I'm trying to get around saying is it feels like Spider-Girl was supposed to end every issue. And it's like issue zero could be all there was. And we talk about that. And then like issue two could have been all there was. And we kind of talked about that. And then issue five could have been all there was. And we kind of talked about that. And then in the course of this volume, issue eight could have been all there was. Issue 11 could be all there is. And it just sort of feels like the title never gets off the ground at this point, in part because it's always afraid of its own cancellation. Yeah, and it's wrestling with a kind of monster of the week format, character of the week format, that when you sort of juxtapose that against a very thin kind of... I don't think quite perfectly grasped by the creative team yet idea of the larger overarching story it, you know it does it's a very stop and start sort of pacing to the entire thing because you can't really see how the monster of the week interacts with the larger story and if there is a question about when this is going to end or not and i actually think that comes across right away in lookout for lady hawk yes which i could not figure out if in her first few pages she was meant to be a hero or a villain like she's written so aggressively and so perhaps undynamically she doesn't feel like somebody I want to follow right away I like her very much but ultimately that is but her initial couple of pages are very monster of the week so when she turns out to be an important character that I'm meant to follow I'm a little taken off guard yeah I mean I think what they're really hoping for in this issue is that the big reveal about like Hawk, which is that there are actually two of them that are sort of running this. It actually gets even more complicated, and there's this whole idea that they're like creating a brand, which is actually really cool. There are some really great ideas in this issue and it is a big reveal it just it's like from minute one everybody just wants to get to that reveal so the stuff building up to it is not treated with the same interest as the reveal of the two of them and the idea that they're a brand which when it hits is great but to get there especially because my biggest complaint about so much of this is every time we get a new character I don't get a personality for them so much as I get maybe a catchphrase 
ways, maybe uh, a cool stylized approach to something, a really interesting super ability. I get a lot of that. Really well thought new powers come up a lot. That's interesting. It's maybe like in some ways this is DeFalco said, I have cooler ideas than fit in with the current Marvel, you know, MO. So this is a good place to work them out. But what he didn't bring here was a lot of personalities. And it's funny because in this time of social media, a lot of times when I read individual issues of all three of these books, I think to myself, like, nowadays, if one of these came out, you would have a lot of information about how people were responding to these characters. And maybe, you know, if you had a hit on your hands with Lady Hawk, and maybe that sort of starts to inform what's going to happen down the road. We didn't have that in 1998 or 1999. This is all just kind of getting thrown out, but you're never going to really know what the feedback is in time to do anything with it. So I have to keep reminding myself that this is not like a strategy to sort of lay out a bunch of stuff and see what sticks. It's just kind of happening. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I would sign on to AOL keyword Marvel and I would voice my opinions, uh, you know, into the member chats. But like, it wasn't like they were listening to us going, oh, Lady Hawk, yeah, Lady, Lady Hawk. Oh, totally, Lady Hawk. At cons, maybe if you got someone's ear, if you wrote a letter to the editor and it got read two months later, you know, you were looking at a really rough sliding scale of reaction because I too do think the device here is really cool. It's actually a device that I've used in fiction. It's a device I know a lot of other writers have used, and I think this might be the earliest I can remember seeing it. So I love the idea that we can redesign and repurpose the idea of the superhero image for something unique, something exciting. You know, two women sharing this costumed identity. I find her falcon symbol strangely close to the phoenix symbol. It's jarring. And the other thing is, I guess I didn't know the future would be so gauche, garish, at times just to what our current, you know, 2022 fashion sense is ugly. This is 1998's identity of the future, which, you know, if you ask 1975 what it thought about Buck Rogers, it would have been like, that must have been some good cocaine, you know? And I do feel maybe a little bit like that was some good cocaine because the future looks so much like a 1980s sitcom, but with splash of future technology that really feels about as futuristic to now as the technology from the first Star Wars movies felt to the prequels. And it's funny because then we get back into this conversation about what the timeline is here in the stories themselves, but then you also have to consider sort of the timeline of the creators and when their heyday was and how they're writing in 1998 about alternate 1998 it's just, it gets very complicated. There's nothing that's holding it together. Visually, it does not work. And it could be made to work with some cohesiveness that informed why these decisions were being made. I agree. And, you know, because for every super cool Lady Hawk that we get, there's a reminder in Phil Urich that Tom DeFalco knows what's uncool and he knows how to make uncool work. Like, actually, kind of, but also kind of. Yeah, I mean, Phil is a great nerd. And I, I mean, I think he's one of really the pillars of what makes the Spider-Girl book work. And he's a really fully developed character. Even the things about him that are unintentionally bad, like the blue whale, there's something great about it because you should have a really stupid superhero identity. You're somebody who's not a superhero anymore. I 
love the idea that one of the things that happened was he tried something out and it was dumb. Oh, so dumb. Yeah. I don't think that was the intention behind the aesthetic of Blue Whale, but it just works perfectly. I do think there's a lot of intention behind Phil's demeanor, his role in the book and all that. And it's it's fantastic. So a lot of times these things do work. A lot of times, you know, Tom DeFalco does not know what's cool at all for a 16-year-old in 1998. Even if you're being very generous and saying, well, it's an alternate 1998. Even still, no, it doesn't work. But there are, you know, Phil is a perfect example of something that shows there's a lot of intention here that does really. Because I think intention is a great term to use. One of the things that I felt about this issue was that when it decided what it wanted to be, it headed for the door and didn't look back. Once we got that this was going to be some sort of like, and I, I haven't mentioned it enough, I guess, but like, I feel like May is purposefully in a take on the Man Without Fear costume. And yeah. oh, and I think we didn't, we talked about that last time. Like we mentioned it slightly, yeah, but, but yeah, definitely. it has this weird vibe to it that this is trying to knock out a lot of story all at once. We see so much redevelopment of the kids in the school. It makes me feel like this was a point at which they were working on a script. The numbers were coming in. It was a hit right away. So maybe they said, all right, guys, let's just let's stretch it out a little bit. Let's have a little bit more fun with Spider-Girl, who always did have, you know, the best numbers of the line when there was a line. But one of the things that strikes me about this Spider-Girl issue is I think Spider-Girl is maybe the least interesting part of it. We spend so much time with Phil. We spend so much time focusing on the other kids at school. Like, I sometimes think that these aren't actually Mayday's friends. She's just that girl that's always around them because half of them never talk to her. They're too busy having, like, public sex fights. Well, A, I mean, like, you're kind of right. Like, they are all having this whole life that she's failing to be a part of because of the Spider-Girl stuff. Again, intentionality. I don't think that the writing here is trying to give you this great story about a girl whose friends are kind of moving on without her and she is removed from their lives. That is 100% what's happening. I also have to point out the big part of the story that you're not mentioning, Franklin. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So here's the thing. I find Franklin Richards perhaps the least compelling thing about the MC2 universe. He is, he sucks. He just sucks. Like, he's so egocentric and he's not pleasant exactly and I do like some of the stuff he says besides our names and our appearances aren't what's important we should only be judged by our deeds um there's things about that that work you know you also should be judged by your intention but like I don't know I don't care for Franklin I just don't again it's one of those things that maybe gives you some indication that this is a wider universe where the things are kind of connected but they're not connecting regularly enough and with enough the word one last time intention that it makes you excited when you have these moments where there's a crossover with Franklin. It's just kind of like, we had this story, it would have been done in this many pages and we need to get a little more content in here. So here's a kind of meet you with the character with the worst hair in this entire universe. Oh, absolutely. And the thing that maybe throws me off even more is when you were talking about intentionality and yeah, there's a lot of weird setups in this issue that feel like they go nowhere. I don't know that I think May and Franklin really flirt I think May awkwardly and nervously kind of throws herself at Franklin over and over again. And Franklin is kind of like, hey, cool. Like Franklin is always in a Brett Easton Ellis novel. And May is always vaguely trying to run the Pawnee Parks and Recreation 
animation department. So it does occasionally feel a little bit like these two characters aren't even in the same scene with one another when they're in the same scene. But then we get to where it kind of seems like Phil is now going to train Lady Hawk, which makes sense because, you know, in the upcoming couple of issues, we're going to see Peter take on more of a role in May's superheroing. So setting Phil up to have his own young hero to ingenue, I kind of like that, but it doesn't feel like it goes anywhere at any point in this volume. And that's a terrible way to kick off the volume. Now, speaking of things that I wasn't sure what to do with and what they led to, May being like, I might never wear my costume again in issue six. Yeah, it's this big moment. And it's actually the art, the panels, the flow of it is really good. Yeah. It just has nothing to do with anything. It comes out of nowhere. It is this gorgeous moment that is tied to no real emotion because this is not something that has been a heavy enough concern over a series of issues. I completely agree. If for no other reason, I feel like it's too early. And this is something that I've made some amount of light of with some of the other issues here and there where it's like, you demanded it. You gotta have it. And I'm like, no, that is not the case. It is too soon for anyone to have demanded this. It is too soon for gotta happen. And I'm fine with it. But there's something really weird about the transition at issue seven. If I felt like issue six was a really good day where somebody said to DeFalco, buddy, sales are up. Do whatever the fuck you want. I feel like issue seven was the day Joey Q got the job and came in and said, I'm going to change everything you do, okay? And like Tom was not here for, I don't know, because there's something so severe about the change in pacing as soon as issue seven starts. I feel like I am barrel running for the door in this issue. It is out of control that it feels like they got all of the notes that we were saying in the episodes we just recorded in the past, because we go through training montages, all of the friend stuff happens quickly there's some basketball two different scenes with dark devil i'm fascinated by how quickly this begins to move yeah because it where's it moving to the fact that it picks up the pace like this fine i think it is too fast but if you take me somewhere really great i probably won't really think about that too much and i do feel like they try to take us somewhere and it's this sort of weird thing that happens that because tom defalco worked on every single title in the entirety of marvel at some point or another in his his career. He has this, I'm going to say, mastery grip of how to work with any character you put in front of him. So I bet there might have been a Nova series kicking off around now. And he said, let me put Nova on the cover. And because he's a company man in some ways that are also really strong, good synergy. He's a company man and knowing how to work with a popular character. We'll see it later on in Amazing Spider-Man. You know, I made a joke about Brand New May being kind of an eye roll title, but that was around the point of Brand New Day, which was a Spider-Man banner era. So he is a good playmate in this Marvel sandbox. I think you're right about that. When things sort of so suddenly take a left turn and then the gas goes up to 60 and it all moves us towards what is not really a climactic reveal of Nova, but just sort of like he comes in as fast as everything else has been happening and just as quickly we are kind of done with him. It's exciting to see Nova. I'll say that. And it is a good couple scenes. It felt like it was a buildup towards something big and it's just a really fast pace. 
the other thing that made this issue feel much faster paced, and I don't know if it's maybe the scans on Marvel Unlimited are a little bit different. I didn't break out my originals, but there is definitely a resize factor from the previous issues. I think these might be the digest renders, which is why they feel a little bit more squished up. But that squishing effect actually has kind of an unfair positive that I feel a little bad about feeling. But one of the things that I do start to notice about these books where I sometimes wonder who said you have to churn out this many pages every fucking month that they're doing this at such a barrel pace and the art suffers for it sometimes these great artists are pushed to do so many pages in such a short amount of time with so little reference art because when you have 10,000 images of Wolverine to reference and I'm not saying swipe I'm not saying copy I'm not saying trace I'm saying reference you have 10,000 images to reference you know Pat O'Leaf only has himself pretty much he's got a handful of artists that did like you know Ron Friends and Bill Sinclair Kevitz doing finishes, but this guy has to come up with all of these identities, all of their faces, how all of them move. And so sometimes, yeah, it can be a lot on these artists to churn all of this out. And I wonder if part of what made this feel faster is the sort of scrunch effect that the pages suffer from. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very plausible. It is immediately noticeable. It's like when you watch a TV show that was meant to be widescreen and it's boxed or vice versa. Vice versa is actually much worse because there's always details on the outside that you shouldn't see. is a weird resizing. When I first opened it up, I thought there was an actual reason for it and that it was going to be like a very special issue for some reason or that it would like at some point expand and blow my mind with why it had been all sort of shrunk together. None of that happens, which is fine. This is very clearly just a, a scanning work, but I do think it contributes. Because, you know, I think the highlight of these this issue that we got to talk about are these two very tacked on pages, page 13 and 17. You know, when you're talking about such big stakes, when I hear Nova, I think the Nova Corps. I think, you know, big interdimensional stuff. I think end of the world. I think big. When I see Dark Devil, you know, he's a little silly. He's a little campy. But I do get he's at least a severe threat in early Spider-Girl. You know, there's sort of this quality where stuff that's really scary early on gets real dopey real fast. So you got to update it real quick. I feel like Dark Devil is someone who could wait a little while before an update. He's silly, but he's not too dopey. The thing about Dark Devil 2 is he cares about me. The Fantastic Five don't. No. So they're huge, obviously, and their presence is like, oh, the biggest superheroes are interacting with Spider-Girl. That's crazy. Dark Devil, not a huge superhero, but he's somebody that everybody knows, and he is interested in what's going on with May, and that presents a very interesting threat, no matter how kin. Yeah, so that when we get to the bullying stuff, <laughs> I still love all of the weird Moose and Jimmy stuff. I do. I think it's charmingly problematic. I think it is is gay and silly. I think it is kind of basic and really dated even for when it's being written. And I think the way it plays out in an in a post-anti-bullying world makes it hang out a little more clunky. Like the fact that this is in a world where bullying is now like an uncool thing to do, it to some extent, it definitely sat kind of funny that they're like, oh, look at Jimmy doing so good for himself crushing moose's windpipe this is a climax 
for this story that has gone on for six issues and that like took Nico and I by storm because it just keeps hammering the point that these two characters cannot escape each other's orbit. Do they hate each other? Do they love each other? What do those two emotions mean to two boys like this? And finally, we get to an actual physical confrontation. It's quick and it's a little silly, but it does really resolve a story. It takes us from this keeps happening, this keeps happening, this keeps happening to suddenly something big has happened that has changed the state of things. And I thought calling this story secrets was pretty dumb. It had no secrets in it. In fact, the only thing that had secrets in it was the last days of Spider-Man, the backup story, which ran like six or seven pages. And this little backup story is representative of a lot of stories that came out of MC2. The seventh issue of every title had of the last days of, which was the first time that I realized just how limited the perspective on this universe is. Spider-Girl is the daughter of Peter Parker who was injured put out of commission can she do it does she have the chops the Avengers made up of a number of the children of the previous Avengers uh, the previous Avengers disappeared or were injured can they do it do they have the chops J2 is the same thing and we see it so many times we even see it with the Fantastic Five in some capacity I found myself frustrated at how repetitive that all became and furious at the idea that nothing could be done about Peter's leg. I'm not saying there is any, any problem with being an amputee. I think if Peter wanted to live a happy, successful life as an amputee, I would really support him. He does not seem to be living a happy, successful life. It seems like having Spider-Man taken from him, like destroyed him. And it is really reminiscent of a line we're going to get to in Fantastic Five number one. I know we're not there yet, but there is a line in Fantastic Five number one where somebody says, why do you think Reed Richards puts himself in this weird non-human little robot? And a guy says, I think it's because after he couldn't save his wife, he didn't feel like a man anymore. So he wants the world to see that. And I'm like, what? What? You're equating some form of physical disability with not being a real man? And you're saying it like it's an emotional lesson we should all feel somehow connected to? If you're telling me that Peter Parker, who's lost his leg, is living in a world where science can't help him, where Reed Richards can't help him, where Tony Stark can't help him, where he can't help himself. Okay, but he is not an example of a character yet whose disability does not seem like something that causes him great pain and sadness. Yeah, and I think we, especially as X fans right now, are really spoiled because we have been seeing a lot of our favorite characters, some of whom just do have disabilities, some of whom have powers that can function like disabilities in the world. In the Krakoan era that we're covering right now, we're seeing a lot of examples of people saying, I could fix this thing that makes it a little challenging for me to be in the world world as I am, but I choose not to for any number of different reasons. This is who I am. I don't want to change it. I'm lucky enough to have support such that I don't need to go through that process. It's an amazing comic superhero exploratory trope that has been so edifying for so many people to read. And this is a really great example of where we 
could have seen something like that. Even for Spider-Man just to say, you know, I wasn't functionally able to be Spider-Man in the same way anymore, but I figured out a number of fantastic ways to live my life and still be a hero with the situation that I was in. But no, he does just actually seem to be bitter and miserable and, you know, has been taking this out on his daughter who is coming into her own for the past six, seven issues. Which is where a lot of the like Peter and MJ kind of running secrets around each other isn't really attractive early on. That doesn't make me believe in their marriage. I don't think that the only way that a couple can have any sort of furtherance in their story is through pain. And I think having Peter at one point not exactly be fully honest with MJ, having MJ not be fully honest with Peter at points, there's a lot of sort of frustrating fake start and fake stop that they only make worse when we find out that Jimmy has been arrested because Moose got punched in the neck. So like from issue seven into issue eight is this weird whirlwind that I really wasn't sure what to do with. And so seven just sort of ends with out of nowhere. Mary Jane is just like, well, I guess you've got to do what you've got to do and we've got to trust you'll do what you've got to do right. And I'm like, this is such a 180. And I understand that that's like the point of the story, but I don't get Mary Jane's characterization through now. It's not even a 180 because she has been so all over the dial. When the yeah, totally. Starts, it really seems like she might actually be the person that's like, and we talked about this in reference to sort of how it might have been a nice moment between these two women for Mary Jane to be like, you're powerful, embrace that, take this thing on and do it. And there's like hints of it. But then she pulls back for Peter, who is just absolutely distraught about this. And in that way, we start to get a thing where she's maybe kind of keeping her enthusiasm about this secret. But then she just goes full bore into thinking this is a bad idea and backing him. And then that's just, it's just, it's a mess. It is not even, there's something powerful to be had in a character who changes their mind because something, you know, the, the secret is revealed or the, there's a moment where they say to themselves, I see now that this is important to you, so I changed my mind. You should be spiked. We don't get that from Mary Jane. We just kind of get unclear motives and motivations and sort of half statements up until this. And I find the line they're trying to toe with, I think it might be trying to keep May really accessible to everybody. Anybody who picks up the book can be May Parker, but we need to get out of that mindset. We are no longer here to tell stories about people who are very plain and very ordinary being special. We're here to tell stories about special people being dynamic and incredible, and we should embrace what makes May unique. We should embrace what makes May special. And, you know, having her be on the outs of everything in her life is making it really hard to see how she's special. Her friends are leaving her behind. Her parents just don't understand. You know, the other superheroes aren't exactly welcoming her. Everybody makes May... I don't know. These superheroes communicate through do this test, do that test, train with me on camera. This is some really weird gatekeeping that these superheroes are into, and I am not here for it. No, and there's no community. Like, it's just not believable to me that all these people are operating in basically a vacuum, aware of each other, but never really interacting, because we know that's just not how the Marvel Universe has ever worked. And again, even if you want to say this is a rebooted one, things are different. New York's a really small city. Like, it's more than just these little encounters that we see for page time. And this is what we've come to expect of these characters, even if you take away the continuity concept, the fact of the matter is that they are always interconnected. And I like pointing out the overlap, because one of my favorite points of overlap in this whole fucking book is finally seeing my husband. Like, in 
then Spider Girl number eight, which I do think two of a kind is the definitive stopping point for the early stopping points. I know, I guess not. But I guess kind of. Maybe. It's this or eleven. I don't know. But this was the end of the original first trade. Eight was the final first issue. And I don't think Kingpin belongs in this fucking book. I love him and I love him here, but I think we've seen him in like six panels across seven issues at this point that doesn't feel like a slow build that feels like an awkward crawl. And I want more for that. And Mr. Nobody is too nobody to be interesting. Like if you want somebody like, and I'm not a huge Breaking Bad fan or anything, but I do think Gus Fring and Mike Ehrmantraut are like two of the greatest fictional characters ever created because they were the right kind of mysterious and fucking terrifying without ever being too silly or too severe. Everything about the conceit of their character worked. And I think that's what you got from Wesley and Wilson in Daredevil season one. It's a really excellent use of what you know and what you don't know. And in this book, all I know is that I think Wilson is eating a bowl of fruity pebbles with a fork and a knife. And I think off-brand Moon Knight is standing behind him and somebody is taking out all of their frustrations on this poor melty candle. And I just don't grow from this page. Not only do I not grow from reading this page in my understanding of these characters and my understanding of the Spider-Girl universe, but I don't have any better sense of what Kingpin is doing here. I don't have any better sense of who Mr. Nobody is. So this didn't play a bigger picture. This didn't play a minor moment. It just feels like too much is in a book that's supposed to be about not having too much continuity. Yeah, that's basically all that can be said, except I want to point out that I thought that it was a bowl of tapioca balls, like from Bubble Tea. Okay, and you know, I ultimately think it's supposed to be the biggest caviar you've ever seen. Yes, or I thought maybe mussels. Cocoa Puffs? Yeah, plausible. Plausible. There's nothing here. I mean, Wilson could be a really interesting Spider-Girl villain because he is sometimes a Spider-Man villain. There is precedent for this because we know that we have Dark Devil in this universe and you know spoiler alert to those listening we will get a dark devil series eventually i don't know what to do with it he has not been enough of a presence to be a spider girl villain and he does not become one from here that would be the other thing if this were the start of something and i could say to you this is the start of something i would at least say it was weird how it got off on this foot but now you know now we're starting we're not starting thing. this is just a few panels of wilson fist and yet i am so much less frustrated by the next i guess this page belongs in this comic scene i love love the Yama moment. It is so important because we've been like uh, uh, what? What's this connection? How are there so many Yamas? And now we see them as a family. The one really like fuck me I'm roll moment is when Zane is like I'm serious man. I'm a lot tougher than I look. What are you going to do? You're going to J2 out in front of everybody? You're just going to fucking explode through another bathroom naked? Is that what you're going to get to have 5 o'clock shadow till everybody backs the fuck off? Is that the game here? Oh we're saying Thanks. I don't have anything to add. It's exactly that. I'm glad that we get the Yama moment. Again, the Yamas, there's so many of them, and it seems like like this is the Yamaverse. Like, I do they have a stone or something? What's going on? I would be so interested to know if there was any kind of plan to centralize them further or to explain why 
it was thought that there should be this one family with so many participants and so many books. So at this point, reading, I feel like seeing them all together is just kind of an Easter egg in and of itself. I just wish it were going to go. I would really love it if you and I wrote some sort of Garth Ennis preacher-esque book about the Yamas just on the fucking road with Rena, just doing what they got to do. I would at this but you know what? You know what? I gotta. I I have to say something. I've always thought Crazy Eight was the stupidest looking fucking thing I've ever seen, and he is this queeny bitch when he walks. I love a parade. Like I mean, the queeniest bitch. And I. It wasn't until you said his design's not that bad that I realized he's not just wearing like a circle. He's wearing a full body figure eight. And now I still feel like. He is from some sort of impossible man version of the Mr. Big music video for it to be with you. But I'm more convinced than ever that this is worth looking at again because I looked at this as a kid and now I'm looking at it as an adult. And I see, for instance, the cops around Crazy 8 are really hot. And I don't think I would have noticed that as a kid. So... And I can like these cops. They're fictional. They haven't done anything to anybody. They're just trying to get this horrible green man to his terrible little green room. Yeah, I mean, he's the long hair, the not quite three tone look to him. Something about him really, really speaks to me. He is just like, he's not even a dandy, but there's something. And it's not even effeminate. He's just high camp. All he does is talk about balls. You know, yeah, he's wearing a giant ape that is part shirt, maybe part shorts, like part gym shorts with leggings (laughs) under it. I I can't really tell. You might be uh, loose corset or boosty. I'm looking at it right now. It's absolute nonsense. And again, keep using the word intentionality. I do not think this is intended to be as camp and silly and ridiculous as it is, but it's there. And for a villain, these things sometimes, especially in the NC2 right now, where we don't have a lot of variety in the villains, there's not a ton of personality. To get one that's just like high camp and ridiculousness, and yes, walks onto panel saying, I love a parade. I don't think anybody was thinking this, but in this reread for me, I'm just like, I'm living right. Yeah. And it's sort of the stuff that he says in the later parts of the issue. He's so stupid. Like, because this is her green goblin, her green nemesis that throws little bombs at her that are far too themed to his very limited costume are, he's just terrible. And then he says stuff like, be a good sport and just die already. And she says, sorry, I have concert tickets for Saturday night. And I'm like, yikes. So, the part that actually hit me like fuck was when Mr. Nobody says, you make for the exit while I distract the lady by firing into the crowd. That's some stakes. For one second, we went from silly, silly book to, oh shit. And when Peter catches every one of those balls and it shows him have like multiple arms, he looks like fucking Doctor Strange going up against Thanos. It is so good. It is like, those are the moments. And it's it's shocking. It's like when you're watching, a, you know, an early soap opera appearance of somebody who goes on to win an Oscar and you're like, oh, dip. Like, it is a moment where I'm like, yeah, Peter, get it, man. It's fucking shit. But like, then there's more moose in a neck brace. And I'm just like. So to be clear, this is all playing out at a courthouse where the kids and may have all gone because Moose's family is suing Jimmy for punching him in the throat and collapsing his windpipe. While they are at the courthouse, Crazy Eight gets brought in for his trial because he's 
criminal, whatever. And then, you know, Mr. Nobody shows up and tries to break out Crazy Eight, this huge battle ensues. But they're all still supposed to be there for this trial between Moose and Jimmy. And we haven't talked about her a lot, but Courtney. 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 I knew you were going to say you I had to stop. bring it up eventually. Yeah. Wait till she gets a solo issue. It's fine. One of the most upsetting character designs ever bar just, none ever it's just the, it's almost mean-spirited it's almost mean-spirited like the this nerd has no jaw bones and is completely do not look at her as a human being she's just kind of a blob head on a body walking around that nags people i don't get what's happening at all the only now i'm turning into liking it because what happens is moose gets the impression from all the chaos that is happening yeah. here that courtney is spider girl Yes, he does. So, you know, like we said, the Moose and Jimmy drama was quite a lot. The windpipe really changes things. We're about to stop. This issue sort of turns everything on its head. We're going to get a lot less Moose and Jimmy just needing each other's bodies and a lot more Moose being terrified of Courtney. This issue also transforms the book in a dynamic way because finally we don't have obstructionist Peter and middling MJ. We have like supportive-ish parents who admittedly, I love how much the two of them both still like look off into the distance all emotional about their daughter almost dying that's compelling that's realistic i appreciate the effort into crafting what would be an impossible experience to imagine but the breakneck pace at which we make for the exit of this issue is overwhelming and it's one of the reasons that i said last episode you can't have all the conveniences of a modern comic and none of the conventions the dark devil kingpin stuff should have been six pages the Peter and Mayday working stuff out stuff should have been its own issue somewhere else. And it's so many things that really deserve a full issue. Not because we decompressed comics because we always wanted to make more money. Some writers decompressed comics to explore feelings further, to further evolve like the rhetorical internalism of these characters and the idea that you don't need to spend that much more time and put that many more words down on paper is dissatisfying for the conclusions you're trying to get me to reach at the speed you want me to reach them. And again, I think it probably speaks to this lack of an editor problem. I think somebody else's perspective reading these scripts coming in might have said, you've got some gold in that Dark Devil stuff. Let's expand that and you know, maybe let's start looking at a Dark Devil book because he's so identified with Kingpin. We're seeing this here. That might be something to work on. You've got something really emotional in Peter having this confrontation with his daughter's villain and then realizing that there's more to this let's spend some more time on when it's one person who's writing the issue and then guiding himself about where he's going to go with it again it's not enough perspective which is how you wind up with the same characters having the same stories in the same familial constructions playing out the same repeated motifs and it's how you have jimmy and zane yama both being weird bullying based testosterone could overtake their bully and it it also involves a girl and like their stories are so weirdly parallel and they're both so weirdly kind of humming a humming a gay and like it's so odd i i just don't even know and so by the time they're like oh brad's in this book i'm like who's brad 
stop caring about Brad in issue two. And you know, this is so dumb. You can make any comments you want about how dumb I am, but on issue nine, page five of the digital, there is a moment where they're talking and Davida says he's been a total testosterone freak ever since he flattened Moose. And the one and the Ed are so oddly spaced. It kind of reads like he's been a total testosterone. One freak ever since he flattened Ed Moose. <laughs> Who's Ed Moose? And that is not a knock against these letterers. It's actually part of why comics changed. It's because you can't put that many words in a tiny little bubble without completely obscuring everyone's face. And you're like trying to cut letters where you can. And I can't even figure out what a testosterone is, let alone the one freak who evidently flattens. So it is an experiment in page and panel management for sure. Which again, an editor. But you know what an editor could not have helped? How terrible a character Killerwatt is? I think Killerwatt is the quite literal worst example of the MC2 universe. You know, people make fun of my precious stilt man all the time, and they should. He's pretty stupid. But like, you can tell a great stilt man story and it really affect me. I don't think you can tell a great Killerwatt story. It would take somebody really significant with a lot of balls to try and make this character work because he doesn't. He is, in my notes, written down as, this could be the mascot for Spider-Girl cereal. Like, this could be the guy she beats on the box. Or like, you know, a Spider-Girl Mountain Dew takeover where it's blue, you know, and he's just like, high energy, I gotta go tea. There's nothing redeeming or interesting, no good character design, stupid name. We already have this character, his name is Electro, and he's a Spider-Man villain. I don't know why there's already too many characters being introduced in this universe. And what makes me more frustrated is this is the umpteenth example of someone else comes in and saves her day. Yeah. I am so tired of someone else coming in and saving MJ's day. She and Mayday saving at Mayday's day. She doesn't need it. I shouldn't be saying, wait, what's her name in her own book? Like Dark Devil did not need to come in and save her from Killer Watt because I mean, like, I could even see Dark Devil coming in and saving her from Crazy Eights because he's legit nuts. But Killer Watt is just kind of embarrassing to lose to. Yeah. And, you know, there's a Dark Devil Crazy Eight, Mr. Nobody. This could have been tying stuff together. And then that so that's all fine. This makes no sense. And this would have been a really good point specifically to not have this happen, specifically to have May take care of things herself in front of Dark Devil and continue that tension of him thinking she's not ready for this. She's not right for this. But having her prove, actually, I'm fine. I can do it. You just saw me do it. I don't always need you to show up and help me. If you want this to be a tense relationship and something with stakes, that's the way to do it. And I really do like what they're trying to do here with Dark Devil playing kind of a background role. I don't feel like he overtakes May in her own stories too frequently. He just does get a lot of attention for a character we don't know anything about at this point, you know, whether he's romantic about May or maybe, you know, familial with her is kind of hard to tell at this point. And I just don't need a, you know, Leia grabbing Luke's crank kind of situation on a Spider-Man poster with Mayday going after who could be her brother or could be an uncle or could be a love interest or could be a nemesis. Just get me closer to that or maybe spend a little less time on Dark Devil, who is great. But he is starting to outweigh some characters who maybe need it more. And definitely stop having him come in and save that. That's not not necessary. We need more May saving the day. He's a big wrench in the flow. Because it's drowning out things like Phil. Yes. You know, I feel like 
we haven't said Phil's name since the sixth issue. This was the ninth issue. That's not like so far apart, especially, you know, Chris Claremont was the best at like this character didn't appear for 27 issues, but you didn't miss a beat. And so I know that, you know, DeFalco is from that age of writers. DeFalco is from that generation of creators who that's kind of part of their MO. They can pick up somebody wherever they left them off, but you're trying to build a new universe. This isn't Phil Urich from Marvel 616. This is Phil Urich from Marvel 982. It's a different number. It's a different character. Because the person that I did not expect to see and the person I did not expect to get to know so well... I think the cover to number 10 really makes me think about something I hadn't considered. First of all, the cover of every issue says the daughter of the true Spider-Man. That's because this is right on the heels of returning things from the clone saga. They literally mean the daughter of Peter Parker, not the daughter of Ben Riley. And that's fascinating to me that that is still on the cover as we approach, you know, mid to late 99. That means that the pain of the clone saga was dangling over everybody's heads as we approached Millennium Rave World Tribe unto the Light Fantastic. So think about what that says about your news cycles back in the day. Wizard said we weren't ready to move on, so the covers sure couldn't. But then, yet again, and just fucking clear off the table, Obama mic drop. I'm furious because, well, it's it's a good thing. I'm going to use it for evil here because at last, the team up you demanded, I demanded our girl ooh, our girl i i want to be like don't call her a girl like with all due respect don't call me girl sir like but also no she's spider girl she's 16 and we're seeing her come of age but calling her our girl like makes me feel part of it yeah we're like i'm like i love her and like i don't always get her but i want to see her make it work And she finally joins forces with the spectacular Spider-Man. And so you know what I had to do, right? I had to look up the sales figures. I had to know, did this do what they hoped? Now, the sales drop-off, issue to issue, is between 1.5 and 3,000 copies an issue. That's significant. But the drop-off between 9 and 10 is only about 300 copies. The drop-off between 10 and 11 goes back to its usual 2,000 copies and that's pretty unfortunate but this two-parter man i cannot believe they did this so fucking soon this is this is like i don't know this is like man we're on season seven of the show what do we do well we've done every i mean donna martin's learned to read again so i don't know what to do now what do, what do we do we invent a new alphabet yes that's what we do like that's that's the levels of like i would have thought this would have taken that long But Tom DeFalco's like, you know what? Bam, bam. It's our 11th issue overall because we had that zero. Don't forget we count zero in this part of the neck of the universe. And what we're going to do, we're going to go to that other neck of the universe. We're going to go right to 616 and we're going to have Mayday hang out with an awkward teenage Peter Parker. I hate to say it this way, but I liked it more when Jessica Jones did it a couple of years later. (laughs) That was a better inserted into Peter's past story for me. But honestly, I like Father's Day. It has all the makings of a special two-part the art feels really special the art feels prestigious like they really worked hard to capture these pages i see a lot of where bagley would get a lot of the really beautiful ideas uh from ultimate spider-man and where these guys got their ideas as well a lot of shared uh emotional synergy the pacing is a nightmare but i would love to get your take because this is one of the 
stories I remember the most from childhood. So I would love to hear how you felt about this time travel two-parter. So absolutely very odd timing for this. This really, again, you know, issues of if there's no continuity, then time travel is a really bad idea. But sure, I can get into it. That's fine. Let's let's talk about some time travel. The thing that I really appreciate this, the, the art is incredible. And one of the really interesting things that makes the artwork is, again, MC2 is 1998's present day Marvel, but assuming that all, like, there's been all the continuity of, like, Spider-Man that you know was happening 18 years earlier. So the way that they've managed to capture an aesthetic that is 18 years previous is really impressive. A thousand percent. It's such an incredible throwback. I'm transported. Yeah, it's perfectly 18 years ago from whatever is happening in their present day, but it's still generic. This works on a lot of levels because it is not making you think like, is it 60s? Is it 70s? There are a lot of times that this could be, but it's definitely 18 years before when present day is for them. And I should say it might be like 2022. We don't know the exact numbers, but it's very clearly you're seeing a difference in aesthetic that shows that the time has passed. Yeah, nobody was demanding this, but we all knew eventually it would happen. Cool. I don't really know what else to say about it. I also, the Aunt May stuff, I just like, that got a little too saccharine and tropey for me. As soon as she goes back, I'm going to go see her namesake. It is fun. I love everything you said because I went into this two-parter being like, that's exactly how TK is going to feel. He's going to think it's saccharine and he's going to think it's rushed and I'm going to still see how it's a beautiful, magical, oh, it's bad. And so like, <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad at all. It's one of those things though, where as a kid, I thought like, as a kid, if you asked me, what are your favorite stories of all time? If like, you know, pick your best two-parters, I would have been like, oh my God, Cool and Gath Master Spell from Uncanny and this. And like, I now see that they're not the same story. But, you know, it is so interesting that this is not a skyrocketed cost back issue. This does not have like a staple feel to it where this goes on every CBR list. But, you know, in a weird way, Spider-Girl 3 feels like a million years ago already. I feel in how little MC2 we've already read compared to how much there is. I feel like I barely remember the MC2 of Spider-Girl 3, which, oh my God, it's becoming a universe. And I kind to feel like I'm getting MC2 homed into it. Like I'm caring more and more every issue. And I'm beginning to be like, oh, dumb streak, Peter. You're being so stupid. Mom hair, Mary Jane. I love when you look like you're a little bit Vicodined out. Like I'm really beginning to invest in these characters. So my least favorite part of this two-parter was why did you fucking take me out of where I'm starting to like so much. I don't even know that I like them. I love them. And I didn't want to go spend time in the untold tales of Spider-Man. I didn't want to go spend time in Spider-Man chapter one. I didn't want to go spend time in Spidey by Nick Bradshaw. Like, why did you do it? Yeah, I mean, it feels like the only thing I can really think is to continue to identify how important it is that this woman, this girl, this Spider-Girl is the daughter of Peter Parker. Peter Parker, Spider-Man. You love Spider-Man. Spider-Man are 
biggest property, the character you all recognize and you love. This is his daughter. They're going to interact. You should get into this. It's also a really easy, great way, I guess, to get around something I was just saying they must have really felt a burnout from. It must have gotten really hard to always draw new things. Yeah, yeah. And this gave them an opportunity to go essentially reference some old images, Aunt May, who they'll never get to draw otherwise. They had probably just done a bunch of research for the work in the last days of Spider-Man. So it was probably fresh and clear in their minds. And And J. Jonah Jameson. I mean, it's it's a fine story. Like, I'm not a big fan of those sorts of encapsulated stories. Random example is I'm not a big fan of the Buffy Faith body swap. It's funny when you mention this being as a child, one of your favorite stories and now looking at it and realizing it's maybe not as great as you thought. For me, it's the Angel episode where Angel becomes human and he and Buffy have that day together where like I thought that was the most beautiful moving romance when I was a kid and then I went and revisited. Yeah, I see how many things I liked as a kid because I'd never seen another iteration of that. And it is certainly not that the first iteration is always the best, but your iteration isn't always the first one you come into contact with either. And I've seen a lot of the ideas done here, the Back to the Future of it, done a little bit better in Back to the Future, perhaps. And the problem is Exiles, for me, will eternally be the gold standard of these sorts of stories. And frankly, you'll never tell me a Spider-Girl story that fucks me up the way Exiles did. So good luck. And again, it's just too early. I think this this absolutely is a story we always knew was going to happen and, and should. I just think issues 10 and 11 is a little early. We're still not. The stakes aren't high enough and our conception of May is clear enough that seeing her reflected in the past of her father and her namesake and this world, it's it just doesn't mean enough. And considering she's going to solo star in no less than a 150 issues. This does feel very early. Yeah. Especially of course, nobody knew. No one knew. Uh, and But that's a you know blessing and a curse. And in this case, because they didn't have the foresight to imagine that, this does feel like we got to get this in because it's a great story and we might not get a chance to do it. Because at the point they're telling this story, the other books know their ending. Now, we said that in our first episode that to some extent this was originally pitched as 12 issue maxis and, you know, would enumerate several titles at once and they would be rotating titles and it wasn't always going to be Spider Girl all the way through. But at issue 11, Spider Girl, it's, you know, it's gonna she's going to keep going. And that means that J2 and A next, they're ending. And instead of launching new maxis, they're launching new minis. And they knew that they were doing a shorter Fantastic Five and they knew that they were doing a shorter wild thing. So at this point, Spider-Girl ending with the words, the end for now. I mean, she really could have been over over. Yeah, and a lot of issues end with that. And it's really unfortunate because it just speaks to this idea of like, we don't know, we're just going to keep doing it until somebody tells us to stop. And speaking of someone told them to stop... 
we have to take a look at the titles that we're kind of never going to get to take a look at again. While we're going to cover Spider-Girl by herself for the majority of this project, A-Next only has six more issues. Following that, about six years later, A-Next is going to get another five-issue miniseries. But as far as we are concerned with the proper title, A-Next, the next generation of Avengers, we're looking at a very strange ending that, okay, I, the more I sit on this ending, I guess the more I like it, but I'm wondering if it's that I like it or if it's that reasonably speaking, Ron friends can come up with some really, really cool designs based on characters I already like. I mean, there's some fantastic artists. Yeah. There are some really good character concepts. There are some very good spins on characters we know. And I really do think though, that somebody like told them you got to throw this ship in reverse because for a book that was supposed to be all not about continuity, everything becomes exceptionally continuity heavy at this point like it's hard not to just read the next issue of a next after this issue of a next for fear that you'll forget something relevant to the plot almost picking up on the downbeat elements of the last story with the dead avengers and the cover being like the last days of the original avengers it really there had to be something where they were told issue sevens have to tie it back into the proper mu you got to pick up these numbers drive that connection home guys and I think that perhaps this issue had to do too much as evidenced by the out and out assault on the art on page three of the digital, which is, I mean, this is a page of lettering that allowed the art to guess spot on the track, but this is absolutely on lettering's album. And it's all like, I love this sort of color paneling. Like, I mean, it looks like J2 kind of strolled into an issue of Casanova. Yeah. But I am really into this color. I mean, the art on A Next is fucking awesome. Like, it really is good art. It's just good art on a book that doesn't do anything for me because you have so many characters. That is ultimately the biggest weakness of the MC2 universe. So many interesting characters that never get a chance to be interesting. Yeah. And that I, there's just no. There's no concept for it. There's no no stakes, no concept. And there's still the looming question of where their precedents are. I have to be really honest with you. Ion Man just comes in and he's like, I look like a penis. And like, (laughs) that's his whole power set. He's just the impossible man vibrator. And that is a thousand percent what we are looking at. I think he has the dumbest, best, coolest, most stupid Epcot Green Lantern, amazing, awful, like... I, sometimes I'm like, no one should like that. That's really dumb. I totally understand why I think it's the best thing I've ever seen. Everything about this character visually works for me. I It shouldn't. He looks like a waffle, but I am he here for this. Like one. He's just wearing one. Oh, he's so cool looking. I love yeah, him. He's got a very cute butt on digital page oh, yeah. or that top left hand, which is like, sure, that's where you want to go with this. I'm here for it. And he's definitely got that like roids to make up for body proportion issues kind of look that I really like from the 90s right yeah, he also does the arm thing that isn't necessary in his case but just really spreads them out a little bit oh yeah yeah i love that spread and like i don't know if he turns his body into a 
or if his body just gets so fast that he looks like only part of him is going while the rest of him is like normal speed. But either way, I genuinely love the camp of this art. Oh my God. The next page though, once again, it is just like, it's so kind that the letters chose to let the art guest spot on this track too. But maybe you should, it's like they're letting the art be Michelle in a Destiny's Child track. She gets half the bridge and even then Beyonce's in the background. And that's how I feel. The letters are letting the art know its place on this issue. It is really overwhelming just how much the story is told, not demonstrated here. Yep. It's the story. It's the story that they told you that we would never need, but of course we needed it and they're finally telling it to us. What happened to the Avengers? And I don't feel at all fulfilled by it. It's just sort of the Avengers went into the vault and came out and stuff was bad. Oh, and Mainframe's back. It's just, he's obviously a fucking robot. It's not even like, that is one of the least clever things about the MC2 universe for how great Lady Hawk is, but underutilized. Mainframe is kind of a joke. Yeah, Lady Hawk being two people is a 20 times better twist than Mainframe being a robot that they pull off in one issue versus the lead up for this taking seven. The issue itself is such a high speed whirlwind of just fight, 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 flashback, fight, flashback, fight, 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 fight. I don't really get a whole lot out of it. I feel that Stinger is supposed to be a leader in an Iron Man kind of way. I feel like she's meant to be very present for the team. She's meant to be, you know, very seen. You know, she's the hero that Peter and Phil are terrified might be May, but it turns out it's Stinger. And so they're relieved that May's not in a fight in another issue. You know, Stinger's meant to be very present, but I feel like her whole personality is angry or attached to men. And that's a really dangerous portrayal of who you're trying to make an excellent character and a main focal point of your stories. And it might work if she had some kind of redeeming quality. She's not a great leader. You know, if she were really angry and always saved the day and always her strategy was what got them where they needed to be. Even if I still didn't like the anger, you might say this is a characterization of a flawed character that is still a hero that still manages to pull off what you need a hero to do, which is be excellent. She's not an effective leader. She's angry. She is uh, obsessed with a lot of men, including her father. Like there's just, it's all flaw and nothing redeeming. But you know who got so much redeeming in this issue? I strangely like the sub-basement team. They are the do-goodiest do-gooders. And like, you know, you know when like somebody's clearly like a dark sorceress, but like she's clearly, and that was for the record, the best accent myself or Elizabeth Olsen did as Scarlet Witch. So um, I really feel there's something about Curse that I think is, she's like, I'm dark, but you're not too dark like she's like adorable and she's so about her red gothness and i just like her Isn't i player that has a lot of fucked up thoughts yeah yeah she's a fun character she's entertaining she plays out a really important role which is don't always judge people by how severe they seem that's a really nice touch in this book because so much about this book and this line has been appearances aren't deceiving you get exactly 
exactly what you expect. These characters are very on the nose. And with that in mind, that she does turn out to be a little bit more thought and considered, I do appreciate it. I I don't know that I care so much about Ant-Man, Stinger, and Mainframe and that whole storyline in issue eight. It's fine. I like seeing the team work together. It's a foregone conclusion. You know, when I read it when I was 12, I know I read it. When I reread this when I was like 20, I know I read it. But like, I don't know that I would have remembered that this happened. Mainframe just looks really cool. It's about it. Yeah. And, you know, this second volume leans so hard into the overarching story after we didn't do it at all after it was just monster of the week and by monster i mean avenger it's just a very odd change of pace that makes it sort of difficult to connect with any particular character you're just kind of trying to figure out where this is going and i did not expect where it was going to be the scarlet witch in some sort of Waylon yutani sleeping capsule yeah i have no idea what to say i mean this this is like a weird like it's actually kind of a cool story the idea that the avengers had this one mission that was so terrible all this stuff came out of it they all retired or disappeared that's actually a really cool story but the way it's coming across here because they are trying to be both kind of mysterious about what's happening and also to feature this whole other set of new avengers who we have to connect with we're just not getting enough of that story not getting enough of what it means for the new avengers and then every once in a while something insane happens like it turns out that scarlet which has been in suspended animation in a pod in the basement for 10 years unpacking that is a three issue series Yeah, I completely agree. And then instead we get a very different three-issue series. And I don't know that 9, 10, and 11, Team Matters, Ragnarok, and Crucible were meant to represent such a final declaration on this team and these characters, but I am beginning to feel pretty bad for DeFalco and crew. The more they rush toward their inevitable conclusion, the more it feels like they were rushed toward an inevitable conclusion. There's such an overwhelming wealth going on in this three-part story. It's difficult to be sure who's who. And what's all happening. And I think it's most clear to me that so much was overwhelming the writers uh, at the bottom of digital page three of issue nine, where we see Jarvis mainframe, American Dream, Thunderstrike, Crimson Curse, Stinger, J2, Freebooter, and Blue Streak. And that's not even all of the Avengers. There's several more. And we have like four stories going on in the background. And Yet on top of this, we're going to introduce a love interest for Thunderstrike and which, you know, I love that J2 like follows him to the locker room and is like, are you going to see a woman? <laughs> like, I love that. But there's something really unfortunate about how quickly it feels like they were told, shut your book down. Yeah. And what they did with that directive in there's nothing really to take away from. And it's frustrating because I want to. I want to gain something from this because I like a lot of the ideas I like a lot of the things on the page and I even like I keep saying think there's things that are so tremendous about the art but if they knew that this was issue 9 and the series was gonna close up shop at issue 12 you are still trying to introduce new things when you already have too many things like I wanna like Maria Sapristi I wanna think that's a cool idea 
but all I can think is there's not enough room for all of the Avengers that there are to have room for human love interests for this character who, not to jump too far ahead, but Thunderstrike writes himself out of the book. So like, and then the version of her from the other universe dies. So he stays with the non-version of her. Why did you introduce her? Why did they take them to a whole other universe? Why did they pull all the original Avengers back with drastically now different motivations and whole stories going on between all of them? It's just so much. And this, knowing that we've only got, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, four issues, or if you just count 10, 11, and 12, three issues, it would have made so much more sense just to give this team a few wins, a few great missions where they're all working together synergistically, where they realize that they are the new Avengers and then to just say something like we've now got to go into that alternate universe and rescue the Avengers that's kind of a fun like little cliffhanger like we know they're going to have to do that mission let's let's imagine in our heads what it would be like but to just pack this so much story that doesn't give anybody a chance to breathe doesn't develop anybody and doesn't really lead to any kind of satisfying conclusion for these Avengers it's just unfortunate but we did find room for some vague Nazism oh always I love the Thunder Guard is watching. I love Thunder God is watching. Like that kind of like what if Odin was big brother with his one eye is the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard. That's awesome. But why is there goose stepping and sea kiling and it's gross. And we've talked about this a lot on our different programming. I'm just not here for using not Nazis to tell a story if the character does not need it to function like a 1943 story about Captain America. But I don't think your only appearance of Captain America in this book needed Nazis. Of course, finding out that Captain America didn't die and that the Red Skull took over the universe and raised Doom to be his child and is evil and Thunderstrike's dad is dead and this was just like I even mean it in a positive way maybe they just started throwing shit at the dartboard it's actually and they all were like, cool stuff yeah there's just not enough time for it like there's nothing these are all great story ideas it's a really cool story it, I mean it, if you had 24 issues and a team of Avengers that you didn't need to establish because they were all new this could have been just the most interesting cool weird story there's no time for it and it's not coming at a time where it's serving it and weirdly enough I would have just accepted this as its own thing. I mean that if you were like, here's a story called Avengers Crossroads, and it is just this other Avengers team who has to go and save this other Avengers team from this world that went horribly wrong. And the whole point is just the multiverse is big. I'd love that. But I don't need the other fallen Avengers because Jarvis, I feel like maybe Tom DeFalco forgets that if this is meant to be its own thing, I don't have an attachment to Jarvis. This is its own universe. This is Jarvis's 12th appearance. I do not have an attachment to Jarvis like you want me to have. He's in like two issues of Spider-Girl. He's in like one or two issues of J2. And then he's in like eight or nine issues of A-Next. I don't have a love affair with Jarvis like I do from the Avengers. Don't ask me to apply that same affection here. 100% though. I also don't 
like Thunderstrike staying behind. I think it's dumb. I don't think it serves any purpose. Yeah, it didn't serve any purpose. We didn't know the character well enough for that to mean anything. Again, you can absolutely make that story work with, you know, if there had been 12 issues of a Thunderstrike story and then this came at the end of another three or four. Maybe, but we don't know enough about him to care where he stays or goes. I mean, like the only thing is I'm breaking up him and J2, the greatest couple in the MC2 universe is just so sad to me. But, you know, other than that, no, I don't really care. Because he seems to even want to be like Mackie, Ani on Stinger. And I'm like, was that something I was supposed to really get? Because weren't you just setting him up with Maria? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's always like a little, like everybody's vaguely the same age except J2. Who knows what could happen? But it's never developed. It's not developed in the first six issues. It's not developed through here. So when they make little references to things or bring in a whole new love interest, it doesn't do anything because we don't know enough about these characters, their interactions, or who they could fall in love with. But do you know who we know a lot about now? Do you know who gets another appearance? you know who we get to talk more about? Killer Watt. So, okay, Anex number 12. That cover, Big Man, and that name, and that stylized font, that's fucking hot. And then you look over it to the left, and you see Red Queen, and that look, and that font, and that fucking wicked little W on her forehead. Amazing. Ion Man continues to rule my heart with what looks like a bulge that is far too off to the left. And then I look further down the page, and I see the Revengers, and Revengers only works for me here because of the cute silliness of the logo. Mm -hmm. I think Saberclaw is embarrassing. Mm -hmm. I think he is such a cringe that I'm kind of like looking at it with my hand covering part of the book because then I can also cover Killer Watt. But truly, this was the worst issue of the series Mm -hmm. with the worst art by far and the worst character and I don't know if it was let's pack in everybody because this is the final issue but the point at which Mainframe and Argo and Cole Tiger and everyone else shows up it feels like I'm being told if I don't care about all of these people I'm dumb like I know that's not what they're saying but I am so overwhelmed with these characters and then like Blacklight has the best goddamn design of any fucking thing in the MC2 universe. Best design ever. And she's so cool looking. And I just want her and Earth Sentry to start dating. I ship it so hard. They just look so pretty. And I love things about this book. But this last issue feels like, in some ways, a humorous take on how madcap 70s issues could get. On how wild and unfocused they could really be sometimes because I didn't find any connective tissue to form a story out of in issue 12, the end of the Avengers. I think that reading is very generous uh, in terms of like it possibly being a send up because yeah, there is nothing. It's so sad because this is the last issue of this. For better or worse, we have some kind of attachment to these characters. We've had 12 issues with them. Even if I didn't love the book and didn't love these characters, I do want there to be an active Avengers team in MC2 and I want to know 
know that they're out there and I want to hope they'll cross over in other things or get another series. I want to be excited about this corner of MC2. And I, I just leave not the least bit interested. And I wonder if part of that has to do with the fact that they had already made the decision that the Avengers would return in the pages of Spider-Girl and more. And they do. I mean, like they're literally in the next issues of Spider-Girl. So it's not like they had to wait very long to appear. And I think that that's part of even the problem that they kept telling themselves they could get it right next time. I think in a lot of ways, ultimately did kind of hinder the series. And that's where I think we wound up with the sort of downward trajectory that the book ultimately had. Now, in our first episode, we said that the first volume of Spider-Girl, we gave it a B plus, both of us. Like we, our scores mostly matched because by the end, we both changed all of our scores. We gave A Next Volume 1 a B minus and we gave J2 Volume 1 a C plus. I think my rating for Spider-Girl this episode, probably more like a B, maybe a B minus. Uh, I think my A Next rating has got to be a C. I, I only wish it could be reasonably a little bit more critical yet more kind. How do you feel about the two we've already talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. B, B minus for Mayday. For A next, it's getting a C, C minus, and the generosity of that grade has to do with the fact that there is really good concepts and writing in there, but they're not assembled in a way that does the book or the characters justice. Not assembled? Mm-hmm. You say? Of course, it wouldn't be an early episode of the MC2 without taking a look at the adventures of J2. And I was shocked by what little fanfare this book kind of rides out with. I know it was always the low seller, which made no sense. It was the X title. How is the X book the low seller? It's because it didn't say X on it. It said J2. Exactly. And what's interesting is the seventh issue of J2, which also featured uh, the last days of story, because of the the weird format of J2. That's actually the A story. Now, I like the Uncanny X people appearance here, but Cyclops is just literally Cyclops in a way that I find confusing. Like, I literally am like, why is he like just Cyclops? Yeah, there's no, you know, everything else has a story for why things are the way that they are. And Cyclops is just Cyclops. Cyclops is just Cyclops. They're not even like trying to disguise that, which might work for Cyclops. But it is surprising. Where's any wife, former or current of his? Where's his team? Where are any? I mean, I guess these might be the students. I'm still still not even really clear what's going on with the X Men or the X people. And yeah, Cyclops is just the same person from Six One Six with no like. You know, he's not even wearing a coat. Like alternate Cyclops is always wearing a coat. He's at least trying to look some way not boyish, mm-hmm. and not that he looks boyish here, but he looks so '90s. The same way that that Wolverine is just straight up the Jim Lee Wolverine. And I've had problems with things about the setup of the X-Universe in MC2. You know, I don't really get why Wolverine became the leader and then Jubilee became the leader. And there's a lot of missing pieces that I need filled in for me to accept this sort of like weird, sad story. Making Juggernaut die a hero is cute because it actually does fit the X-Men. The X-Men love to die heroes heroes. It's their favorite thing to do, whether it's Kitty Pride being a bullet 
or Jean Grey being Jean. The X-Men love to die. It's their thing. So Juggernaut being like, I'm going to do it. Like, that's cool. I'm into it. I love Juggy as a good guy. I'm such a Juggernaut fanboy. So this works for me. But you're not giving me enough in this book that this story feels well earned. No, it's literally just... It's been a minute now. You guys are probably wondering what happened to the juggernaut. It was this. This is what And happened. it's it's beat by beat. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then, and so now there's no juggernaut. But there is. And it's Zane, and they're making it so clear that he's just not the fucking juggernaut. Like, that's part of the problem. Don't keep telling me he is the juggernaut if you're going to keep telling me he's not the juggernaut. Is he the juggernaut, you know? So this story is kind of the problem with MC2 as a whole as well. You can't really get away from these characters if you're so focused on utilizing them and you can't really utilize them if you're so focused on getting away from them so what you wind up is you wind up having stories that talk about people instead of feature them and then don't develop other you know like we still really need to develop j2 we need to know who this kid is not a good time to spend a bunch of panels talking about his father who is not present and who like the avengers the mystery i didn't really need to know i mean it's a cool it's not that the story isn't cool or that you couldn't tell it it's that it was really low on my list of priorities yeah and the fact that j2 seems to function as some sort of weird rotating anthology and when it's J2 or like in the next story Rena I'm into it when it's weird fucking fairy tales or fucking big Julie fuck so girls night out I don't know why this is here this really should have been in six but I think it's trying to like spread Rena's appearances out you know the backstory on Wolvie and Juggy kind of justifies its includedness here uh, I like women getting unquestioned creatively you know time in a men's page book my perspective isn't, I don't know why Rena's here, but it feels like you're not utilizing this space right. Yeah. This doesn't feel like some definitive Rena story. No, and it doesn't It doesn't give us anything that makes us excited about her as a character. It feels real. I mean, like, it, it all feels true. It's great to see Electra. It's great to know that they have this kind of bond. It just isn't really doing it. I don't always love the things they talk about because they're not usually guys. They're usually, like, their social worlds, but maybe. Mayday and DeVita, Mayday and Courtney, Mayday and her mom, Mayday and Lady Hawk, now Rena and Electra. It's not perfect, but at least we're getting women having dialogue about people that aren't their love interests. Yeah. You know, it's it's a step and I'll take it. But weirdly enough, are, are you like also a big Rena fan now too? Because like I get excited about her and like I'm like, I still love J2, but I'm like, oh, it's a J2 story. Oh, but like I'm like, oh, it's a Rena story, bitch. Take out those pink claws. Yeah, I mean, she's she's boss. She's kind of able to just step onto a page doing a lot of stuff that other characters, including May, a lot of the time have needed a lot of ramp up to get to. Yeah. Oh, and like, that's the thing. I think they thought we were in for this ride a lot longer than we were. I think they thought we would give them nine and ten issues to figure themselves out. No. Maybe if you were a backup feature in a regular Spidey mag, but not your own thing. Speaking of its own thing, the day I lost nearly a thousand pounds. Woo doggy. Every lifter's nightmare, number one. Number two. So Talia, so Talia, sure, they're one person now. Talia and Miller decide to catch Parody, the worst ever Joker ripoff, but he can switch powers with people using a switcheroo gun because he parodies them and he switches powers with J2. The mechanics on this guy's powers are insane. He's God caliber. I think this guy is, uh, this character represents the thing that the X Men need on Krakoa. They don't need the five anymore. They just need to like get 
this guy to help them. I this guy, man, what a reality warper. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, like, it's funny because it just isn't anything. But the concept is so monumental and huge. Yes. That it's all, all as you read through it, you're like, wait a second. This is now, like, this is the MC. The MC2 is this man. And we have to figure out how he's controlling everything and all the wheels spin around him. And that's why everything's a parody. Right. But then the way he saves the day is by cucking himself. <laughs> He's like Miller. So Miller is so big. People don't question that he's not J2. Jesus. Number one. Number two. What I did like about this was that we don't ever see Zane be like, no, I don't want your help, Miller. Zane is like, fine, help me. Okay. Like, he's not too proud. Nope. And I he's like not, that. He's not Jimmy. He, he doesn't like this guy, but he's also just trying to get through the day. So, you know, that's the thing that makes J2 feel a little bit more like an X title. Spider-Girl has that Marvel team-up feel, even when somebody's in the book. A-Next has that manic feel of the 70s and 80s in the Avengers, where the lineup was unstable, but you knew those characters, so you cared a bit more. J2 has a very, I pulled together the team I need kind of feel, which is an inherently X-Men idea. So between working with Miller in issue seven and ultimately, what I love about issue eight is the Magneta and Wild Thing at Cassidy Keep mm-hmm. kind of vibes. You know, that was that's an X-Men story, man. That's an X-Men story. And Saberclaw shows up and he sucks, but he's Rena's half-brother. We never find out who the other I mean, obviously Wolverine is the, the one parent, but we never find out who the his mother is. Yeah, as long as it's not Electra and Sabretooth. It's an X-Men story. Through and through. And again, it's an X-Men story, and you would only know that if you knew continuity. So anybody who was like, I don't know anything about about this but i'm told i can pick up the mc2 universe and just read anything they're getting at this is just nonsense but you know if you know what's going on and know the background of a lot of this stuff it's really fun and like i really sort of like j2 magneta and wild thing go to cassidy keep and they fight in thrala and they fight saber claw and i wanted them to be like an x-force yeah like i don't need them to disrupt x people x people got it going on i mean no but they're there. They're there. So at the same time, like, I kind of wish there was like a boy in Thrala, like in Thralo, her gay younger brother, who's like, hey, guys, I'm like a femme butch and I want to join your team. They'd be like, you're in, you're in, but you have to change your name. <laughs> so I just thought this was a fun couple of pages. It's one of the longest J2 stories in the whole series by quite a few pages, with the exception of the final issue. This was a really great storytelling tool to utilize what an X title could be. I'm really surprised that the follow-up to J2 wasn't an X-Men title featuring Wild Thing. That really would have made more sense to me. I just wish Marvel wouldn't have printed J2's Funny Fairy Tales for Fools and Felons, The Three Law-Breaking Pigs. It literally means nothing. Like, it, I don't even want to be like, it's not worth the paper worth print it on. But like, it literally serves no purpose. I don't know who would have thought it was cute or clever. It's got too many words and it's it's reading inaccessible to be a learning to read tool. It doesn't define the characters in any way that it could go in any sort of source book. It is really just no one told Tom DeFalco that that was not the best way to utilize those pages to make people care more about the characters. And I mean, the most egregious example of it comes in the next episode when we talk about the Spider-Girl annual, which is just about the most offensive thing ever printed with some of those pages that are like literally just summarizing the previous 12 issues. What the fuck? But I don't know. 
know, at least at least three little pigs or three lawbreaking pigs, whatever the hell it is, is out of continuity ish. I mean, it's not. It's in continuity, but it like isn't the a plot. Yeah, it just sits in the back, and you can forget that it's there. Just move right on to you know Juggernaut being held at gunpoint by a monk. Oh my God, Big Julie the gangster gorilla. So I get that Julie is a reference to Julius Swartz. I get it. You know, it's cute. I think the trouble for me is there is no story here. There's no this, story. This is literally a rote moment. This is like Tom DeFalco said, what's the beat sheet? And kind of wrote it out. And I am sad because as a kid, I couldn't see that that's what was happening. And in my head, I think I've built up better stories for these characters. And I've put together pages that aren't there and character moments that never happened. I want so much more for these characters. Big Julie the Gangster Gorilla borders on actionable and like I don't know what anything but the two pages of Rena in this issue are meant to be. This is not a J2 comic. It's so embarrassing. Yeah, it's just, it really is nothing. Again, like, these moments happen in comic books. There's they're obviously not all winners. And when you've got a 101 issue series, that's fine. It's not good, but you could just move on from it. The problem here is we know this is ending really soon. And to lose a whole issue to this story that just doesn't give us anything for Zane, it doesn't give us anything for the other characters. It's just unfortunate. It's nice that we see Zane's mom be a DA again. We saw it, you know, her lawyering over in the pages of Spider-Girl, but there she was, you know, somehow involved with a case that she she really shouldn't have been because of familial ties. And I like that she even gets a punch in in this story, but it just doesn't move anything forward. And certainly Lucky Lotto doesn't. You know, I joke about how some things feel very 90s. That does feel like a down on his luck vertigo. It should have been gross out. There should have been weird sex and nudity and drugs somewhere in it. And it's such indie comic vibes, but like you can't do clean versions of dirty indie comics at Marvel in the back of kids books you know it just doesn't work that for me the one, a definitive statement yeah the one thing i really liked was daddy's little girl pages 18 and 19 of this story were pretty good wild thing really belongs in this title at this point especially because they tied it in with wolverine and not electra yeah quick two-page story but you know at this point we've grown to love rena everybody always loves logan they should be around more to give this book some lift so when they are around it's great it's unfortunate that there wasn't more of it i thought though that issue 10 on the road with Wolverine highlighted all the best things about what you just said. The buddy cop element, the sort of implicit motel room stuff kind of works for me. <laughs> oh man, I love it. <laughs> I love that Zane gets to hang with Logan, his dad's best friend. The problem that came in that ruined this story for me was the needless perving scene. I get that we opened with J2 being naked, running through the streets, exposing himself as a giant man. That is not the same thing as walking in on young women. And there's sort of a hyuck hyuck kind of effect about it, which gets explored and explicitly de de denounced in an upcoming issue of Spider-Girl. But there is something very Porky's Revenge of the Nerds about walking in on these poor young women who are showering. It's just not cute. And I think it has to do with maybe it's a coming of age moment that all men think, all men want, or all men experience, or someone told them a story and it sounded so good, but there is something very different about Zane's side 
guy's changing body being the one to see them. If Boy Zane saw them, it'd be one thing, but Man Zane saw them. It just left a very bad taste in my mouth. And Wolverine's there. Yeah, it's just, there's nothing about it that's good. Again, if there had been another editor, I'd like to think they would have caught that and said, no, but there it is on the page forever. What's interesting is that this issue feels unbelievably similar to an issue of Wild Thing we're going to get a little bit later. So it's kind of crazy how to the same well they keep going in such a short period of time, which is, you know, really evidenced by the, I don't even need to talk about a cantankerous juggie in King Arthur's court. You know, no. basically Zane is a simp and then he transforms and then he's like an alpha dick and it doesn't make me feel good about myself. Like, I don't want to be him. He doesn't seem like a good guy. So there's really nothing I get from those stories at this point. I liked seeing Wolverine. It reminded me why I love Wolverine, but he didn't feel different than Wolverine, which is kind of funny because I guess Wolverine's already an old man. So he doesn't really have to age into anything. Yeah, no, it's just the same guy. All said and done, this book would have done so much better being, you know, J2X. Yeah. Because when they try to do other stuff, it goes a little weird. It is supposed to be a kid's book and it's either written way too much like one as though kids have no intelligence or sense of humor or anything like that or leaves situations that are too adult unexplored like it could be a great book for kids to explore adult themes and realize like i will one day grow bigger as this person is doing in a magical way but it doesn't take that time to i agree completely it misses the coming of age and just makes it like a rushing of awkward and you know it's a complaint that i don't really have about j2 but issue 11 the master of jug foo way too many characters just too too much character i was excited by how much of it felt so contemporary to then you know American Dream was nice to see because it's important to keep that thread going but Blind Al like from Deadpool we also have Jarvis and then some interesting appearances from Howard the Duck Iron Fish Shang-Chi Weasel White Tiger the Sons of the Tiger Cat Deadpool there were so many characters here I was maybe actually thrown by the fact that this was the penultimate issue of J2 and it was the most characters in any issue yeah I guess another fun like kind of X-Men-y issue. If this had replaced the gorilla story and we'd gotten two issues for like a double issue for the ending, that could have been really fun. There's This is not bad. It's very chaotic. And it because it's the penultimate issue, it would have been better served doing other things. But it's like a, it's a cool X story. And that's one of the things that they really missed out on the fun of by not doing that. You know, like if you had made it, every issue was, a J2 solo either a wild thing or a Magneta solo. Not that that's what I would have preferred, but I recognize that, you know, they were not treating women with the respect they deserved. You know, it's not all better now, but it was certainly much worse then. And you could have had a team-up issue or a team-up story every now and then because the second half of this works kind of pretty well for me. I, I do wish that maybe it was more different than the previous story. There was no surprise bad guy, which maybe made it feel thinner, but surprise X-Men was nice. I also think it's astounding to me that ultimately J2 runs 12 issues and Wild Thing runs 6. She appears in 5 issues of J2 and he appears in 4 issues of Wild Thing. That means Juggy appears in 16 issues of the two titles and Wild Thing appears in 11. That really does support our claim that this really could have been an anthology all along, especially because Magneta appears in 3. And especially because we're talking about the X corner of the universe, the thing that was so popular for Marvel in the 90s. It just The fact that they wanted to set that whole thing aside and not just put X's on things to get eyes on them is silly. 
Because I do think that they did something very silly. I don't know that the 12th issue of Juggernaut works for me. You know, Deadly Reunion, where they get Juggernaut's father from the dimension he's trapped in. The series just sort of ends, which is nuts. Doc Magus and Doc Strange work together to get J2 to save his dad, who's trapped in the dark dimension. They bring him home. His mom knows he's J2. He and Talia are best friends. And, like, his character is good. Everything's happy. His life's complete. It's I, it's just such a shrug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all, it, again, it's beat by beat. It all happens. Like, and, you know, maybe needed to, but also really maybe didn't. There was no sort of promise at the start of this that we will tell you what happened to Juggernaut and we will make it right. Or we will put Zane in a position where he is comfortable in his own body, knows his purpose, whatever. No promises were made. There were no expectations for this. They could have gone any way with it. So the fact that given those parameters, they felt like this needed to be the story they told for him. It did not be the story they told for him. And because it's such a dense and complex one, it doesn't have any room to breathe. It certainly doesn't. They want to hit so many beats, which is so strange to me because ultimately Juggernaut is a backup feature in Wild Thing. So there's still several more J2 stories to come. And instead of letting the character grow into that, breathe into that, we get this sort of all the story they can possibly think that's left to tell kind of moment. It's almost like they said, look, we don't know that we're ever going to see J2 ever again. I think from my notes, I, I noticed he has a handful of appearances again, but I don't know any specifics or remember anything. It's really disappointing that he seemed like he was meant to be the equal foil to Spider-Girl, but there was so little support for this line that even though his sales did tank and he wound up at about 50% of what he launched at, this really was a really dissatisfactory ending for J2 the way it was for A next. Yeah, there's just not a lot more to say about it. He's a character that I think when we started, I thought had a lot of promise. I still see yeah. all the ways he could be really cool. And you know, because he could continue to appear, there were ways to play around and have some fun and make him compelling and make readers want to see him come back. And it just none of that, unfortunately, got done. No, and it leaves me walking away pretty disappointed. If I were grading this book based on the actual J2 content, I would be forced to give it at best a C plus. Yeah, for just the main J2 stories, I think that's a at fair best. Yeah. But the problem is the backup stories really do the book dirty. And I find myself wishing I could give the book in good conscience a D, but I recognize that that is so unfair to the positive of the good content. So I'm going to give this book a C minus. Yep, I think the C minus is, you know, that's un unfortunate, but the those backup stories, there's so many of them and they're taking up so much valuable page space where we still need it to get to know and develop this kid. And that means that at the end of both of those series, A Next averages a C plus and J2 averages a C. I feel pretty okay with those grades. I'm maybe surprised that Spider-Girl is only averaging about a B in comparison, but I think that's because Spider-Girl takes a little bit longer to get herself together, whereas these titles never really had a chance. Yeah, I mean, we know we've got a while with Spider-Girl, so I think in some ways we're also grading her... I don't want to say more harshly, but the, the curve is a little bit different. I agree very much. And we're also facing an interesting situation. When we pick up next time, we're going to be taking a look at Wild Things 0 through 5, which just is the successor to J2, and Fantastic 5, 1 through 5, which is the successor to A next. It is strange how these books operate in the exact same parameters as the titles they are replacing. And Spider-Girl will see the annual 
Renewal, as well as issues 12 through 16, which work to kind of toe a line for the the MC2 universe that it very quickly realizes it has to give up on in the next volume. So I'm very excited to see where everything is headed. I'm nervous, but I'm optimistic that we'll make it. We know it'll be a bumpy ride. Well, at least we've got each other. Just the MC2. Just the MC2 of us. Oh, man. If Normie could see us now. And until next time, TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You can also find us both over on X's for Podcast, where we talk about the most current X-Men comics, as well as a broad selection of the current Marvel line. You guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And don't forget, you guys can check me out in the amazing upcoming Young Men in Love anthology, which you can order from Diamond Comics or from your LCS. And until next time, guys, keep it MC too cool. Something about loose heat. Slam it. Slam the heat. (laughs) 